Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This week, we're very happy to have a return guest to our podcast, Michael Kenna. Um, it's really good to talk to you again. We met last year in Bosom in southern England when you were there for an exhibit. And now you are holed up in a secluded location near Seattle. Indeed. Good to see you again, Kirk. And hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Normally, I live in Seattle, but uh, we have this little place in Port Townsend, which is just over two hours away. And basically since February, we've been holed up here. And it's, it's rather nice, I must say. We're very close to the water. We can go for walks, bicycle rides, and we have some space around us. It's very nice, but for someone like you who is always globetrotting, this must have been a big change. It has. I haven't been anywhere since February. <laughs> where, where had you planned to go this spring? Oh, I can't even remember. All over the place. Uh, do, many, many places. Uh, do you definitely... generally plan like a month here, a month there when you travel? Yes. I, I, I was basically planned throughout the rest of the year from uh, February onwards and just had to cancel. I mean, all the exhibition openings were canceled. All the book signings were canceled, lectures, everything. All my photographic expeditions were postponed. So it's life. It's, it's a different uh, existence for us all. It's not such a great sacrifice for me. At least I can still do some work. I can go back to my old negatives, for example, and wander around and see what there is. I mean, I'm very in a luxurious position insofar as I've worked for 45 years. I have this huge archive of negatives. Thousands. Um, yes, thousands and thousands. So yeah. it's literally been a, it's been a creative process of coming up with projects based upon new and old work. Basically, new work meaning they're old photographs, but I've never printed them before. Right. And so you've got a new book coming out um, that's already out here in the UK. It's called Buddha, and it's photos of Buddha statues from around the world. Um, Jeff was asking me before we started recording, was it your idea to make a book of Buddha statues, or was it a publisher who said, well, you've got a lot of Buddha photos. Would you like to make a book? I like to think, you know, what is it? It, it takes a village to raise, a, to raise children, and it, it takes a village to make a book. <laughs> Um, so, in fact, it was a publisher's idea. Um, yes, I've had an interest in, in, in Buddhism, you know, since I started going to Japan in the mid-80s and have photographed Buddhist statuary just because I've found it so magnetic, attractive, mysterious, esoteric, just different from my own background. And so I have this extensive uh, collection of, of, of photographs of statuary. And I happened to be on a trip maybe a year ago, and I was emailing back to my publisher about another book. I can't remember. Maybe it was the Holger book or the Rouge book or uh, Beyond Architecture. We've published four books together, Prestel. And I just sent him some snaps of pictures I was doing at the time, and I was in some Asian country. And I think he was said, you know, maybe we should think about a book on the Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sometimes that's the way my projects uh, they come from nowhere. They come from a little email or just from an idea. Well, you told me last year that, what was it, a French publisher had noticed that you have a lot of photos with birds. So he said, how about you make a selection of bird photos and make a book? Exactly. The same same thing. And my response to him, the bird publisher, was that, no, I really don't have enough photographs. I mean, I like birds, but I'm not really a bird photographer. And, and he said, well, you know, we counted. You have 35 on your website. <laughs> <laughs> And so I went back through my all, you know, 45 years of negatives and found another 100 images. Yeah. From which, you know, edited back down to 40 or 50, whatever it is. Very that, recently, uh, the same thing happened with uh, an Israeli press. We were just chatting and he said, you know, 
you're English. We really should do a book about England someday. And I said, well, uh, I was there in, you know, the early 80s photographing specifically the the, 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 the wool and cotton towns in Lancashire and Yorkshire. Yeah. And I did some at the time, but, you know, you, 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 you continue on and your, your subject matter changes, your interests change. And so they've just been dormant for all these years. And I sent him a few samples. And he said, yes, let's do it. So now I've been spending the last few weeks scanning those negatives so that we can choose the selection and then in the winter I will probably print them and then next year there'll be a publication on Yorkshire and Lancashire. I don't know what the Northern England, I don't know what the title will be, but it'd be a kind of a strange publication, but very interesting, I think, for me. And you're from that part of the country? Yes, it was a returning home. It was following Bill Brandt's uh, great influence in in the early 80s because you know when I first started, I'm sure we discussed this, when I first started photography, I always thought photography was a you know, it should be beautiful and inspirational and it's the landscape and trees. And and then I kind of, you know, after six or seven years, I kind of came into this circle when I was back to my industrial roots, photographing power stations and cotton mills and, and you know, things like this and old canals. And it was that first return in that first circle that we're concentrating a book on. You're from the Northwest? Yes. Liverpool? Witness, uh, which is 12 miles from Liverpool. Right. Yeah, the, the local team was called the Chemics, rugby league team, because, uh, because of the chemical factories. You know, it was yeah. very interesting. <laughs> um, I saw last year Ian McKellen did a one-man show, and we went to see it in Stratford, and he's from around there, and he was talking about the industrial background. Of course, he left pretty quickly once he got into theater. Um, yes. But that, that whole northwestern area, for me, it's the Manchester music scene of the, of the 80s um, yes. that's really yeah. magnetic. But that whole area seems a lot more creative than... I don't know, the southeast or you know, different parts of the UK. Again, I've only been here for seven years, so I don't know well enough. But there are areas that seem to have that sort of creative personality. It might have something to do with the climate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're indoors a lot. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I was, you know, I'm a product of you know, basically Liverpool, you know, Jerry and the Pacemakers and the Beatles and all this sort of, you know, the 60s. Um, so yes, it's it's a hive of creativity around that area, and, and but I, I think it's you know I live in Seattle now, which is you know home of indie music basically. You know it's, yeah. it's just it's rife with creativity, but the climate here is very similar. You know it rains a lot, it's quite dark sometimes yeah. in, in winter, and and I think it just is conducive to creativity. You're not out you know skiing or you know swimming or yeah. <laughs> snorkeling. You're you're kind of indoors, using your creativity. Although that's not very good for photography. You want to be outdoors for photography and you have to deal with the weather when you're there. Is that why you yeah. left? No, it's a long story why you left. I know that. But <laughs> it, it's true that in areas like that, photography tends to be, I mean, it fits with your work, the tones of black and white, the monochrome, doesn't it? That's, that's my home. That's where I come from. European influenced. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But now it's fine. You know, as long as there's an international airport close by, you know, I can live anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you said you're going back in the archives and looking at old photos. Do you have a lot of cat photos? <laughs> uh, uh, two or three. <laughs> you never know. I might. <laughs> yeah. See, I, uh, I take a lot of photos of my cats. You said you didn't have any bird photos and then turned out to find hundreds. So <laughs> you never know. But actually, a, a lot of your bird photos are interesting because there's one that's like 200. The, the title of the photo is, I think, 242 crows that you actually count the number of birds in the photos. Well, it's one of the hardest part of photography, I think, is to come up with titles. <laughs> I could just say untitled study number 576, but 
Well, so some of your photos, you do that. So the, the Huangshan Mountain photos, for instance, you say study number whatever. Yes. Um, why do you not title them? Because it's harder to give an identity to something. It's just a picture of a mountain and trees. Well, there is that. But I think you also give, for me at least, too many clues to the viewer. So if I say, you know, mist, mist in the mountains, whatever, it kind of already, you know, seduces the viewer in a sense in a certain direction. Whereas if I call it Huangshan Mountain Study 75, it's completely neutral. Yeah. So the person who comes to that image can bring their own background experience. You know, some approach it from a mountaineering point of view. Some often all, you know, some are bird watchers, you know, some are climbers. You know, everybody has their different perspective. And I, I quite like that I'm not influencing what people think or, 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 or see in the images. It's true, because once you give a title that contextualizes an image, right. and let's say you're giving a title that has something like morning dew or a title that's like evening mist, and that's, that's already putting a flavor around the image. Yes, yes. And, and sometimes I can't avoid doing some of that, but I try not to be completely overt about it. I try yeah. to be as neutral as possible. You know, I might say, early in one, I might say night walk, you know, because out walking or Twickenham Bridge or River Thames Reflection or something. I try to make them very neutral and descriptive as much as possible. So, yes, with birds, you know, if you have 100 bird photographs, you know, you know, yes, spotted, you have to count them you know, whatever. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what the birds are most of the time. So it's. So the, the Buddha book, I find this stunning um, in part because I've been a student of Zen Buddhism for a dozen years and I've been interested in Buddhism for about 30 years. Um, I lived in Paris for many years, and I went to the Musée Guimet, where you took some of the photos, and I remember appreciating the collection of statuary and, and all other art that they had in there. What I find interesting is that this book, in some ways, is two books in one. It's a book of your photography, but it's also a descriptive book about Buddhist iconography. In other words, mm -hmm. since the table of contents is listed by country, that makes it almost a scholarly book that people can look at, even if they're not interested in the art of the photography. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I don't have much comment on that. I mean, I, 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 I found it difficult. It was a bit like the birds that when the publisher said, you know, you have all these photographs of Buddhas. And I said, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll print them or I'll, you know, scan them first and I'll, then I'll print them all. And then I think, what am I going to do with these? You know, I have 100, 200, 300 photographs of this statuary. You know, how do I order it? And so I sought the help of the publisher to find an independent curator who right. could essentially assemble, assemble them, select Organize them. them. Yes, I, I had no idea what I was doing. I just, I found yeah. visually I was attracted, but I had not a clue in terms of historical, which were important, which weren't important, which were the the true Buddhas and which were the derivative Buddhas. And, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's a worldwide phenomenon and it's very, very complicated. It is. It is because there's not just one Buddha. There's all sorts of Buddhas. Exactly. Um, yes. The Buddha yes. Shakyamuni is the, the, is the main dude, but then yes. there's all the others. In fact, the cover um, is one of my favorite photos in the book is the Amida Buddha from Kamakura, which is this huge statue. Yes. Um, very imposing. And it's a specific position that's Japanese and in other countries the Buddhist statues aren't the same positions. Right. You've got the hand positions that change according to which Buddha. It's very complicated. It is, it is. And, and, and uh, we, we did, 
decide to have a scholarly text at the beginning, which explains some of this and, 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 and the variations from country to country and, and the historical relevance to them also, much of which I, which I don't completely understand. Well, but you do now because you've read the introduction. <laughs> but what's interesting is that you do see the grouping um, by country. Uh, the statues resemble the the, the faces of the people in the country. So yeah. the Japanese statues look like Japanese people. The Thai statues look like Thai people, etc. Yeah. Yes. And the way they're grouped together gives them a certain unity that you get beyond just the artistic nature of the photos. Yes, and I, I, we included landscapes also to give more of a flavor of the country and then how they associate with that particular country. Well, that, I was going to get to that because what, what I find interesting is that it's not just a photo of Buddhas. It, you've interspersed other photos. Um, I'm in China here. Here's uh, Huangshang Mountain Studies 1. Here's a picture of a tree. One of my favorite pictures is on page 25. It is Rock Garden and Roof Shadow. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to the photo on Michael's website. It is this extraordinary geometric photo of you see the gravel of the rock garden cutting diagonally across the frame. You see yeah. the shadow of the roof that is aligned with the diagonal. And I just, I just love that, dis that chance moment that you discovered when the light was just perfectly lined up there. Is this one of these things where you saw it coming and you waited to get that shot? <laughs> I wish, I wish I could do that. I am. A, I mean, I, I seem to have a, a lot of patience, but at the same time, I like to do what Gary Winogrand did and photograph to see what something is photographed. So I tend to explore. I'm constantly on the move. So something like this was a chance opportunity. Often I visit temples for half an hour, for an hour. I, I mean, I don't know this particular one. Where is it? Oh, it doesn't say where. Oh, it's Shikoku. Yes. So it's two, but it's 2012, isn't it? Yes. So it's a later visit. Um, so I, I, I just look. I look around. I see what I see, and I take the opportunities. Um, I did not set it up ahead of time. <laughs> it was a fortuitous circumstance that the sun was shining, and then and the sun was in a particular place, and I was standing there and, and spotted it. Tell us about your pilgrimage, because in the back of the book, you explain how you got into this whole idea. And you did this pilgrimage of 88 temples, which apparently is a thing. It's kind of like the equivalent of the Compostela pilgrimage in exactly. Spain for the Japanese people. Yes. Well, I was introduced to it uh, a few years earlier by uh, my Ishiwata, my agent in Japan. She took me to Shikoku and uh, I visited a few of the temples and found out about the the pilgrimage, which is 88 temples based upon Kobodaishi's journey a long time ago. And uh, I just decided that this was a fun thing to do for my 50th birthday. Of course, a fun thing to do. <laughs> you're supposed to walk it, which takes, you know, two months to six months. I didn't have that time. You know, most of it I, I did by car. You know, I would drive between temples and. I had a, a guide for some of it, um, but also in those days, you know, GPS was such, you just put the telephone number of the temple and it, it would take you there. And um, so I would arrive. I had a book uh, and every temple you go into, the, 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 somebody would do this beautiful calligraphy on a page and, you know, with these vermilion stamps. Yeah. And so this wonderful book of this souvenirs of all 88 temples and then. Later, I went to Koyasan, uh, the temple headquarters in, in Honshu, and, and had it, you know, stamped and uh, and, and written on, on on them. And I, you know, I worked out ahead of time how to do this heart mantra, uh, which is um, you 
you know, takes maybe two or three minutes. And um, I just found that, uh, as in most of my photography, I would go to the temple, I would pay my respects to the Buddha, I would say my prayers, I would ask permission to photograph, not of somebody, but just to the essence of the place. And then I would spend time photographing whatever I saw, such as the geometric shapes, you know, temple roofs, Buddhist statuary, you know, anything that I would find uh, that's, that, that, that may be inquisitive. Sometimes I would spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes there. Uh, some of the temples are very, very small, very simple, very humble. Some were in the mountains and I would spend four or five hours, you know, getting there and walking around and seeing what there was. Um, so it was, it was a very humbling, uh, very exciting experience. Um, they say that uh, with these pilgrimages, it's often the time in between the temples, which is the most authentic. It's the journey rather than the destinations. I didn't really experience that so much because I was in a car. It was something I could, I would love to do again someday and actually walk the whole thing. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was a, it really was a, a good, fun thing to do on my 50th birthday. My Shakuhachi teacher did it last year. It took her and her partner about two months. Yes, she well, had the, the white robe or whatever, the, the hat, the, yeah. the staff, and she would play a bit of Shakuhachi in each temple. Oh, um, it, yeah. it was quite an experience. I, I saw some of the photos from it. It was actually quite something. So were you lugging around? So you shoot Hasselblads, you shoot film. Were you lugging around a lot of cameras and lenses when you were doing this? I guess that's an excuse to do it by car. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would. It would be quite a trek, I must say, carrying my pack around. Um, I've always believed that I should photograph with what I can carry, but I do use medium format cameras, and they are, you know, they're analog, they're film, they're pretty heavy. So yes, two camera bodies, five lenses, tripod, all this sort of stuff. What you know it makes it's it's quite weighty. So yes, That's I did a lot. In the car, and you know I would lug it up all the steps to the mountain places, and but I could do it in those days. Now I have yeah. a new. Did I tell you about my new knee? <laughs> yeah, you told me that you got a knee replacement. And you used to be a long-distance runner, right? And so you've done marathons, you've done a lot of walking, and now you have titanium um, okay. in ready. your leg. How, how's it going? Uh, it's five weeks out, still very painful, still hobbling around, but it'll, wow. it'll get better, I'm sure. So yep. do you think you'll be able to go back to climbing the mountains like you used to do? Apparently so, yes. Okay. I, don't, I don't think I can get back to running because it's too yeah, impactful on, on the knee, yeah. the artificial knee. But um, but I can certainly bicycle and row and a lot of other things. Great. Technology is wonderful. <laughs> do, do, do photographers who get knee replacements like think about the gear that they're getting? It's like one knee replacement better than another? You know, this, one, this one's sharper. This one's smoother. <laughs> yeah. I've never been one of those photographers anyway. You know, I've used the same equipment I've used in since the mid-80s. I don't even know what new equipment there is. Have, have, you, have you even replaced your camera bodies or not? If Other fall, than things that get damaged or lost. Yeah, I'll just get another one. You know, I've dropped them in, in oceans before and, you know, they've got completely waterlogged and, you know, things have, have – they fall off the tripod occasionally. And So, yes, I have. I've, you know, that, I've, that's interesting because too many photographers, especially, you know, amateurs like us, get all obsessed about the gear thinking, oh, yes, it's a good camera that's going to make good photos. And I'll just remind people listening that you did a wonderful book of photos shot with a Holger. Quite right. Quite right. Yes, yeah. So what is it? $25 camera. <laughs> 
Yeah, <laughs> with yeah. even that and, you know, some cheap 120 film and you can do wonderful things. Yeah. Um, in fact, there are a lot of bird photo, photos with the Holga. I guess yes. because it's wider, it's easier to move when you see the birds flying by. Yes, with with a, with a, with the tripod, that is one of the uh, the downsides for me is that most times I use it on a tripod, hmm. uh, just because you know I like long exposures, I like depth of field, I often use long lenses, all this sort of stuff, and handheld. You know, for example, I was recently you know, I photographed in uh, what was it in in Laos on a boat, so it was all handheld, and and recently somebody asked, "Well, can you make a big print of that?" I said, "No, <laughs> it's impossible." <laughs> Too much camera shake. It won't work. Small print works extremely well. Yeah. So, so I have a question about technique because obviously um, you went to art school and then you worked as a printer. And how long did it take before you just ignored the technique in the sense that the camera becomes your eye? I can't quantify it, but I think it's with any skill level that you need to be able to have the technique down to the point where you don't even think about it and then you can be yeah. you know if you're a musician for example or you know a pianist you know you you study the piano for 10 years to the point where you can imagine music and you can create it and it's the same with photography and the more time you're spending fiddling around working out how something is working you're, you're missing what's going on outside it needs yeah. to be an extension of your of your body of your of your mind of your soul just you need to be creative with it and you can't really do that if you're constantly figuring out how to do something i don't think anyway but you said you you said you keep five lenses you carry five lenses with you i do um what what sort of focal lengths is this getting everything from ultra wide to ultra telephoto uh, it's two and a quarter so it goes from i think 40 millimeter to 250 and it just goes you know along yeah i also sometimes i also carry one of these uh, converters that makes the 250 500 if i'm desperate Right. Uh, is is Hasselblad not a system where you have zoom lenses that you could replace some of those with, or are you just not like zooms? <laughs> I don't think they ever made a zoom lens for them. Oh, really? Okay. At the time they got to digital stuff, they did, but I don't think with these 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 older lenses. So yeah, I, I remember when I was shooting film on an Olympus, zoom lenses were available, but I don't remember much about that yeah. back in the day. Yeah, I don't. I I really I I I understand very little about the technology and technique of, of photography. I find that really interesting because uh, on the one hand, you're a master printer. So you've got everything down in the dark room, you know, all the chemicals and the, the length of time and everything. But on the camera side, it doesn't really matter that much as long as you've got the good quality that you want in, in the medium format. It's a bit like, you know, I have a guitar over there. You know, it's, it's a guitar with six strings. It doesn't change much. You can, there's all sorts of different guitars, but you know, if you learn to play a basic guitar, you know how to play the guitar. You don't have to have all this elaborate stuff around it. The camera equipment for me is exactly the same. It's very simple equipment. It should be, at least for me, it should be very simple equipment. And the well, same well film cameras are simple. Yeah. They, they don't have a lot of complicated things. They've got a shutter that opens and closes. You've got a thing to advance the film, and you put a lens on. Yes, yeah. But at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm out here, and you know, my brother-in-law is here, and my you know, cousin's here, and... And, you know, they have these cameras which they can attach to telescopes and they, you know, they revolve around and plot, you know, with the yeah. cockpits and, and do these amazing eight-hour exposures of the solar system and Milky Ways and, <laughs> and all sorts of exquisite things, which yeah. is beyond me with my simple, you know, film camera. So I think we just make 
choices as we go along as to what we want to do and how we want to do it. And, and I'm very content with, you know, this old traditional film format that, you know, takes me forever to actually come out with an image, you know, many months later or, well, now 40 years later, I'm printing images, you know, and looking at the negatives saying, well, I didn't fix that very well. It's kind of showing signs of age, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember last year you told me that you really like the 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 surprise that comes when you um, when you develop a roll of film that you shot a couple of months ago and you didn't remember exactly all the images, and that's very different than the immediacy of digital. That's that's a basic principle that I've applied to my work for many years now. Is the is the idea of avoiding pre-visualization. I kind of work against that. I try to forget immediately what I photographed. And I don't have any reference. You know, sometimes I, in the past I used to take Polaroids, which is basically a reference to where the place was. Now I can use my, you know, my phone and take a snap so I know where it, where it was. But I love to forget what I've just done. And then I can see freshly again, well, what else is there? You know, how do I do this? How do I approach this? What, what other position can I be? You know, if it's a long exposure, a short, you know, f-stop or whatever. It, there's so many, there's infinite variations to photograph any, any anything. Um, and I find that, that forgetfulness is 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 a great asset for me in terms of if I'm moving around, it's because I'm doing my knee here. Sorry, um, you can step it out. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I heard it creaking. Yes. I know. I know. Uh, so yes, I you know I, I and once I photographed, then the film is processed in labs. You know, in Tokyo, London, New York, Seattle, various. I don't process my own film because I find it intensely boring. Um, I don't even know what chemicals they use, and that's absolutely fine with me. Um, and then I eventually get the contact sheets back, all the negatives, and I make contact sheets. And sometimes that can be many months later. And it's, yes, it's just like Christmas. You know, I'm opening presents, and I'm seeing things completely afresh, objectively. You know, I don't really remember all the associations at the time. And, and so I can see these images and, and, and respond to almost neutrally, like it's somebody else's, somebody else's images. Well, that brings up a question for me about intention, because part of the thing that I was wondering as we were coming into this was, uh, you know, when you were shooting these Buddhas, did you ever have the idea of, oh, well, maybe this will be a project or a book or, uh, you know, will this contribute to maybe some sort of theme later on versus just being in the moment, this is where I am and I'm just shooting and it sounds to me as if it's it's even uh, it's even more in the moment because you're taking a shot and then forgetting what you did and taking another shot. Yeah, the mindset uh, it varies across the board. Sometimes I'm working on specific commissions, specific projects. We're working on a book or an exhibition, or uh, other times I'm just photographing. Sometimes I'm almost photographing in spite of myself because I'm I am trying to experience the moment. I mean, some of the you know Shikoku pilgrimage was I kept thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't even photograph. You know, I should just I should just be here. But then I was thinking also, well, but I also I should, you know, be here and record what I see here. Um, and I always feel that every time we encounter a person, subject matter, whatever it is. It's absolutely unique. Never, ever happen again. Even if you return in six months, five years' time, it's never going to be the same. And so there's a certain responsibility, if you're a photographer, to photograph. You know, I'm a trained photographer. I've been doing it for all these years. You know, mm -hmm. and, and I should photograph. Um, I remember when I first started the, 
a project on concentration camps in 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 Europe uh, in the late 80s. And, you know, I was almost I was almost ashamed of what I was doing. I was like, why am I interested in concentration camps? I just don't understand this. And at the same time, I had to override this sense of I sh you shouldn't be photographing here. You know, you should be paying respect. And I kept thinking, well, yeah, if I was a victim, if I was a survivor, I would want this recorded. You know, I would want somebody who's in the right place, the right person, at the right time to make the most of it, you know, to, mm -hmm. to capture what they see. And I did this for a number of years and I couldn't quite understand why. And eventually I came to the decision and conclusion that, you know, if I just give all this stuff away, which I eventually did, it releases me completely. I'm not taking any advantage of the situation. I'm not profiting. It's a collaboration with, with subject matter. But I didn't realize at the beginning what I was doing. I didn't photograph towards a project. I photographed because I was there and I felt I should photograph. Mm -hmm. And then I continued photographing for 10 years and I gave everything away. And it felt great. You know, it was, that was the way it should be. Yeah. Um, so the project defines itself as you as you do the process sometimes and other times you you know you have a specific project the river poe which is another book that's coming out this fall that i've just finished just printed it's you know it's going it's not even been laid out yet the first layout i just saw yesterday um it's for a project in northern italy i encountered this river back in 2007 i photographed around the area it's like meeting a person. There was an attraction, there was a affiliation, there was an association, there was a feeling that, yeah, you know, I want to meet this person again or I want to meet this river again. So I went back, you know, in 2008. You know, I had four or five photographs from the river. And then it took me another 10 years, 12 years, and thought, I'd like to revisit this place, which is often what you do with photography. For me, it's a matter of saying, yeah, I wonder what's changed. You know, I've changed, you know, what's that was Heraclitus quote about the river is never the same as the person is never the same. You can't step into the same river twice. Exactly, yes. So for me it's it's like that in photography. It's it's everything is always a slightly bit different. And I never quite know ahead of time what I'm gonna be doing next year. So we went back to the river Po and I don't know, a few years ago and then I said, Yeah, I'm gonna trace this river from start to finish, you know, from the mountains to the delta which is what I did. I, you know, I got on board a local uh, photography organization to help guide me. Then I met, you know, various people who took me to different places and kind of knew the year. And I did it over two or three years. I photographed and now it's, you know, it's a book of a hundred images of, it's a project that when I first started, it wasn't a project. It was, <laughs> it was, a, it was, it was a kind of a, it was, a, it was a conversation. It was a meeting and the conversation later developed into a, a relationship relationship developed into something a little more serious which is now will come out in, in a book and an exhibition in, in the fall and yet there are other projects that you go into them already knowing that you have a limited time like when you went to Mont Saint-Michel right um, you got access at night and these are extraordinary photos because they're long exposures because it's empty Mont Saint-Michel empty no one sees it empty yeah. I, I've only been there a couple of times mm -hmm. I used to live a couple hours from there yes. um, mm -hmm. and even even off season it's just so crowded but again, that was based upon going to Mont Saint-Michel. How many years before? I don't know how many years. I mean, I'd been to Mont Saint-Michel two or three times before. I'd made photographs. It's like very touristy. It's, like, mm, it's interesting, but it's not that interesting. And then 
coming back and say, oh, those are interesting photographs. You know, I should revisit and then going back and then. Oh, I see. Then, you know, it's a bit like the Buddhist thing. And then saying, in some ways, you know, how do I gain access? But how do I form a connection? And so I was able to form a connection with the Benedictine order of monks. And, and I stayed with them, you know, for four or five days at a time in complete silence, which is my perfect bliss. Uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I had to go to all the rituals, like, you know, if I would go to Koyasan and I do the Buddhist rituals. Uh, so I go to all the rituals and, and I had carte blanche. They'd let me wander around anywhere I wanted, basically. And so I could photograph in the middle of the night uh, when there was nobody around. So it's a, it became a project, but it wasn't a project at the beginning. So when you were young, you were going to become a priest and you changed your mind. And how does this inform the way you're approaching things? Like you just said at Mont Saint-Michel, um, taking part in the rituals, wanting that silence and peace when you're doing your photography. Um, I did when I was when I was growing up. You know, when I was eight or nine, I was an altar boy at the local Catholic church. You know, I just loved being in the churches. I loved all the rituals, the importance, the kind of ceremonial aspect, uh, you know, just the atmosphere. I would spend hours in the church on my own, just sitting there, you know, praying, listening, absorbing. Um, and I decided that I wanted to become a priest. You know, it's and uh, I was accepted into a seminary school and I spent seven years there. So I learned a lot about discipline. Silence, yeah. ritual, prayer, you know, all of this sort of stuff. Um, a certain point, probably puberty, I decided, ah, maybe not such a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are some vows that aren't necessarily great there. <laughs> right. right. Uh, but, you know, I have absolutely no regrets about that education. It, it, it took me away from my, you know, in, industrial, uh, urban um, education, which, and put me into a, a different place where the priests were teaching but all these priests you know they had phds and you know mscs and mas and you know they were highly educated and i received a very very good education uh, as a result um and it kind of trained me in many ways for my photographic life you know in terms of of the discipline it takes you know we'd have you know three-day retreats of complete silence or we'd you know, we'd be we'd have prayer every day or mass for an hour and a half. You know, we'd be on our knees and silence. And yet there's a certain amount of discipline that you almost, if you grow up with, it becomes normalized to a degree. So when I go, you know, visit the the the, the monks or the or the, or the you know the, the uh, Buddhist um, temples, it feels completely natural and normal to me to enjoy and participate in in the rituals. And it feels completely fine to me when somebody says, well, you know, what do you do for those five hours when you're doing a night? (laughs) What a luxury to do nothing for five hours, you know, to not have to do anything for five hours, just to watch the stars, you know, the the moon. But do you really do nothing? Do you not read, listen to music, nap? Yeah, I just walk. You know, sometimes I nap if I'm tired, but if, you know, if it's an hour exposure or whatever, I'll just hang around and explore or... Sometimes I set up a tripod and then I wander off to another place to find out where I'm going to do the next photograph. Um, but it's essentially, it's not, no, I don't, I don't plug myself in electronically very much. Yeah. One last thing I wanted to ask, and you're known for not taking pictures of people. 
um, with the exception of your book Rafu, which was uh, photos of nudes that you've shot in Japan, which came out a year or two years ago, yes. um, you generally don't have people in your photos. When you were shooting some of these Buddha photos, they looked to me, and so since you've got the book handy, uh, pages 124 and 125, you've got two photos from the Musée Guimet, which looked to me like classic portraits. <laughs> yes. um, how much time did you spend on the lighting for that? Uh, zero. <laughs> I don't like. You, you really just took the natural light in the museum. Photograph whatever. That's what I do. Any, okay. Yeah, I use whatever light there is. Because the one on page 125, the lighting is striking. Um, it almost looks to me like it was crafted to, to really get those shadows. I'm sure well, these sure museums choreographed their lighting very well. Uh, I, I don't yeah. need to be it to do that. Well, most museums have too much light, though. Yes, they, they, they do. Muse they, is, is, is particularly good. And I would go in the off days, too, so maybe they wouldn't have the main lighting on. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I, literally, I, I could do, I mean, because I can do exposures for as long as it's necessary. Yeah. And, 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 but did, did you approach these as just photos of objects or did you think of them as representations of people and consider that? In other words, try to make them portraits of people at the same time? Well, yes, they are people. I mean, they represent the Buddha. Um, but I approach it, I suppose, very much in the same way as I'd photograph a tree, for example, which we don't regard as a, as a person, but I still regard it as a portrait. You know, it's a portrait of a living organism. And I try to photograph most things with a certain amount of respect. So if I was going to make a portrait of anybody, I would try to do it in the best way that I possibly could. Michael, I want to thank you very much. This is a fascinating book. I recommend it to anyone, whether or not they're interested in Buddhism or statues of the Buddha. Um, I guess there's about 20 non-statue photos throughout, maybe even a little bit more. Um, landscapes, trees. Um, what I really like in the in the statues is that some of them you've got the full statue, some it's just the face, some just a, a small detail. It, it's quite a stunning way to approach a subject. And, and all the more interesting that you didn't go into it thinking, I have to check all these boxes to get these photos all different. But... How many photos of Buddhists do you have all together that you chose from to make this book? I know on your website there's quite a lot. Uh, probably two or three hundred. I mean, I have many, many that I haven't even printed yet. Um, I just, you know, there's always a time aspect to silver gelatin printing. It's not as if you can, you can't scan three or four hundred prints at a time. You know, you have to yeah. many hours printing each one. So the ones on the website are the ones that I've printed so far. Uh, right. There are many, many more. Uh, but just going back to what you were saying about the, the aspect of the book, in, in, in some ways for me, looking, I mean, it, I didn't actively paginate it in this way, but in a sense, it's the way that we, we would behave if we went to one of these places. Um, so we see the landscape, we see the overall, we see the, the Buddha statue in whole, we concentrate on certain aspects, our gaze moves around, we perhaps see the flowers or the candles or the incense or we, we embrace what is there. And, uh, and that's, you know, I, as I said, I didn't paginate this book. And so it's, it's wonderful for me to have somebody else do it in a, such a sensitive manner. Oh, you didn't do that at all. Okay. Oh, which is great. Sometimes, I mean, well, it's great if you like it, but then if you disagree, it's not so great, right? Uh, well, I mean, if you ha you can have a you can have a, a dialogue, uh, and I'll, yeah. you know, if it's not, I, I did have some input later on. You know, I didn't like some areas and some full bleeds I don't like on pages, and I had to make things and change things around. And yeah. so, 
but basically it's somebody else's pagination and and I, I you know I, having been doing this for so long and you know, I have 70 odd books published at this point many of which I've paginated myself I fully acknowledge and I'm conscious that I do things in a certain way you know my head kind of controls me to a degree and it's becoming a little predictable and I know it is <laughs> So yeah. but I know the way I'm doing it. And I try to do it differently, and I no, I and I go back to a certain models of of understanding and and progression that that fit well with me. But it's nice to have. It's wonderful to have somebody else come in who thinks differently, sees differently, mm-hmm. and can move things around. And and it's you know it's incumbent upon me, you know, supposedly the artist, to be able to accept that I don't know it all. <laughs> I'm, yeah. just, I'm just a part of the equation. And, and, and that sometimes yes. other people see connections in uh, across photos that you don't even notice because you've seen them so many times. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is, for me, wonderful. Okay, Michael, thank you very much. Um, I hope your knee gets better and you can get back to running or bicycling or whatever soon. <laughs> I hope so, too. I, I'm going to be skiing soon, even though I couldn't before. <laughs> no, <I'm not>. <laughs> <laughs> So, Jeff, have you got a snapshot this week? I do have a snapshot that has nothing to do with anything we've been talking about because that's just how these work sometimes. My snapshot is a little substance called sugru, S-U-G-R-U. And what it is is, this came up recently, it's basically a little, it's like clay that you can mold into a shape and then when it dries, it, it basically becomes like rubber and you're like okay why are we talking about this well when you have things like electronics and power that we all deal with sometimes they get frayed sometimes they get you know uh, scraped up or whatever Um, in this case my wife's laptop the power cord uh, had gotten um, worn and so you know, it's it's one thing to replace, say, an iPhone cord, but to actually have to replace the power brick for a MacBook Pro, like, it's just blah. So a little dab of this, it comes in a sealed pouch, you work it with your fingers, you put it where you want it, and then after 24 hours, it's dried and basically fixes that that spot. Now, I also bring this up in a photographic way because uh, when I had my my Fuji X-T1 that I had gotten from a friend. The first models of the X-T1, the buttons were really pretty flush on the back. And so he had used a little bit of Sugru to just uh, basically put on top of the buttons to make them a lot more tactile. So it's it's the type of thing where uh, it's sort of like a Sawzall. Once you have one, you start looking for other reasons to use it. <laughs> you know? um, pressure washers are the same way. It's yep. like, all right, what can I pressure wash yeah. next? Uh, and so it, it's just this, this very handy little substance that can fix a lot of things, and especially in you know, photographic situations. Uh, there are just lots of different, different uses. So Sugru, that's my... That's mine for today. What do you have today? I've got an app. It's called Meta Image, M-E-T-A-I-M-A-G-E. Um, Meta Image is an EXIF data editor 
Exif data is the metadata that your camera writes to your photo files, and it contains things like the name of the camera, the camera model, the date and time, the GPS, the aperture, f-stop, ISO, all that information. And we've talked in other episodes about how I don't really care that much about the settings that I've used, but sometimes there are things you want to find out. Maybe you want to look at what lens you use for a certain camera. Um, maybe you want to find, for example, and I'm looking at a photo I shot here, um, which is the focus pixel? So Fuji cameras record the focus pixel, which is the, the, the precise pixel where it focused um, a shot. Maybe you want to see the film simulation or did you use the electronic shutter or not. All sorts of data gets written into digital photo files. Now, if you look in most photo editors, you can see some of that data. But what MetaImage does is it gives you the complete EXIF data. Plus, if you go into the preferences, you can choose... Um, specific camera brands, Apple, Canon, uh, Fuji, Kodak, Leica, etc. And you can add a set of tags for those cameras. So I have EXIF data. Um, it also shows IPTC, XMP, and ICC, which are other types of metadata. And I have a little tab for Fujifilm EXIF data. So I can look at the specific data that Fujifilm cameras write into the photos. Now, I don't really need this often. Um, I, I'm not obsessed about this sort of thing, but every once in a while, I do want to look at this. And this is a really useful tool for this. Uh, it'll show you your location on a map if GPS is recorded. Um, it shows a thumbnail. Um, and you can edit uh, any of these. Well, you can edit most of the fields. Some of them you can't edit. Um, some of them you can where you might not want to. Like, for instance, I'm looking at a photo with um, shadows and highlights. Um, it shows the setting I had when I took the photo. I could edit this if I want, but I don't really want to. So it's called Meta Image. I think it's $17.99 on the Mac App Store. More data. More data is always good. I think just after talking with Michael Kenna, sometimes you don't need the data. Sometimes you just need the picture. Um, and, and I really like the way he just like waits for months before he looks at his photos. Yes, yes. Maybe we should try that. Just take some photos and then forget about them. For Oh, wait a minute. That's... A big portion of my library. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's enough for this week, Jeff. See you soon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's Photoactive Cast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.